gives me great pleasure to present to you for the first time the Paul McGrath episode of An Irish Man Abroad, completely remixed, remastered and re-edited. At the time of recording this chat, I was getting to grips with recording remotely, didn't know the first thing about the technical and technological side of these things. It sounded as good as it could sound back in 2016, but things have moved along. And now I'm delighted to say that this and all our previous episodes recorded over the phone will be dramatically enhanced. Paul is still a legend. That hasn't changed. And this conversation is for me one of the best episodes of the last nine years of An Irish Man Abroad. I found it absolutely fascinating to learn that when Ron Atkinson first presented you with your contract to play for Manchester United, that your initial thought was, I don't know if I want to sign this. I'm actually earning more money playing for St. Pat's and doing a little bit of metal work part time. Yeah, that's actually a very, very true fact. I, I, I couldn't believe because my mum had been telling me, my mum thought, as soon as you signed for Manchester United, we, we only saw them on TV back in Ireland. And I loved the uh, match of the day. I loved, I loved the United thing. I loved the George Best, the players that they had playing for Manchester United back in the past. But I actually believed that once I'd signed for Manchester United, which was, was always thought of even back then by Irish people in particular as the biggest club in the world. Then I thought I would be, I, you know, I, I was getting a million and, and, and my mum actually thought this more, probably more than me, that I was going to get a million, you know, there was millions of pounds coming and we were moving house and stuff like that. But it, it just, it never turned out that way. And so it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a come down for me when I met Ron in his office and, um, he, he kind of bashed out the instructions of what I was going to be getting to the, uh, St. Pat's people who went over with me. And it was, it was a little bit more, um, bringing you back down to a level where, you know, you're, you're not going to be a millionaire and you're not going to just get it overnight and stuff like that. You're going to have to work for it. There's obviously a psychological aspect to that, that he was kind of laying down the law to, that he'd probably seen it before that, uh, young fellows coming over and thinking now they're Billy Big Balls now that they play for Manchester United. There was that aspect to it. But yeah, you're, you're, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, very much so because because you 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 believe because you, and and even in my case, I believe that a little bit of the hype that because you were in the newspapers, you were in the Irish Times and stuff like that. You had your picture taken in the Irish Times, heading the ball or scoring a goal. Or I scored about three goals, I think, in the, in the whole <laughs> of the League of Ireland. But I used to think it was a great thing to do, and I used to come back. Um, I was a security guard as well at the time. When I, what, sorry, when I first started with Pats, and I used to love coming home and buying the, the Irish press or something, and just being able to, if you saw your picture, you were thinking, geez, you know something, I'm a superstar. Yeah. You kind of get, there's a little bit of the, it gets caught up in it. Yeah, that's true, Jared. A, a big fish in a small pond is what you referred to it as in your, in your book. And as such, the, it seemed like the entire Pat's family had arrived over for that meeting. You said that there was uncle, aunts, kids, and a couple of dogs arrived <laughs> in the no, room. But to be to be fair to them, I mean, we were a small club. I mean, 
in Inchicore, Pat Barr, brilliant club, they're family kind of club. I love the supporters at Pat and I'm still friends with some of the supporters of St. Pat. But the actual hierarchy in Pat, you could tell they were out for blood. <laughs> they wanted a, a, a big payoff here. They were mm. thinking, we can sell this guy for whatever we want. And I'm thinking, well, hang on. I, I don't know what you are even doing because I'm, I'm at this stage, I'm 22. I should be mature enough to even negotiate my own contract, but I had not got a clue because I'd been brought up the way I had in, in, um, in, in a, in a kind of a strange situation where I was an orphanage, I was in an orphanage for, for 18 years of the 22 years that I lived. So I didn't, I didn't really understand that this big, big business deal was even going down. And so to have like eight people flying over on a plane with you and walking into Ron's office was kind of strange for me because I, you know, I knew them all, but I just wondered why is everyone here mm. talking for me when I, I can chat to this man perfectly well on my own. So I dig dig a little bit, I dig a little bit deeper on, you know, my first thought was, well, what changed? Why, if you're initially reluctant? did what changed your mind to go, you know what, I will take it. You described in the book that uh, he kind of bullied you into it. He kind of went, well, if you don't like the money, why don't you piss off back to Dublin? And those were as categorically put as it was, that it was a case of that's the offer, like it or leave it. Do you know something? I I actually liked Ron Atkinson. I loved the way Cause I, I don't, I don't, I'd only ever seen him on TV. So I, I never, and he was even bigger, he was larger than life when I saw him in reality. Mm. But, it, but, but he spoke, he was kind of trying to speak a, a kind of, there was an honesty about him as well. And he was just saying, look, we're trying to get you for as cheap as we can. The guys that you are sitting in your office don't mean anything to me. Like, you know, we're wanting you the player. You work out a deal with what these guys are going to give you. We're going to give you this. If you want to come. Now, his bluff was, of course, if you want to get back on the next plane to, to go back to Ireland and be whatever you're doing, lifting. And at that stage, I was lifting metal uh, in a metal workshop. And I just thought, well, you know, I, I, I still could go back to lifting metal. Don't, he, he was bluffing, but I was still thinking, because I'd never been really away from home, so I was... Even Manchester United, I was having second thoughts. I can't believe that now. Mm. But at that moment in time, I was thinking, well, you know, yeah, I could still lift enough metal to <laughs> turn me and turn a living. Yeah. But having said that, then I just thought, no, do you know something? I actually love playing football. It's, it, he's offering me something that's not a job and it's with the biggest club in the world. So I'm good. You know, I may as well just throw my hat in the ring and just say, yeah and let the lads then trash out whatever they wanted to trash out. So, so eventually I said, I knew, and I knew he was doing me. I knew I was getting played, but I, but I did want to play football and I did want to show um, that I could hopefully do with, with, with uh, the greatest team in the world. They eventually trash out a deal where United will come and play a game against Pats and I think 30,000 pounds was the fee and another 15,000 pounds for when you made your international debut three years later it seems so small whereas at the time it was probably massive it seems so small in the context of what we know premier league football was to become i'm really fascinated to know that even though united were viewed as the biggest team in the world everything that i hear described of the period it's so much 
pre-Premier League. It's so different yeah. to and, what and, we recognize it as now. And, and for me, I'll be honest, it makes me feel very, very old <laughs> because, because now you hear the vast sums of money and stuff like that and you just think, no, there's no one's worth that, that amount of money in football now. But then you, you've got people like Bobby Charlton and Jack Charlton walking around telling you what they used to get I, I'm being fair, it was, it was in Shillings. Yeah. Back when they were playing, it was in Shillings. And the John Gileses and the, and the players who I admire, the John Gileses and the Liam Brady's. And I thought Liam would, would, was a multi, multi-millionaire, like, you know. But again, if, if Liam told you his, his actual wage for playing for, for Arsenal for the first couple of years and stuff like that, you actually think, well, do you know something I've done? I've done enough. Bad rating, to be honest. <laughs> and, 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 and it's frightening to think a player of, of his ability, or Ronnie Whelan, was still on reasonably harmly, har- harmless money. I'm sure every player who played back in that era is shocked now by the... I think it's gone a little bit too far, mind you. <laughs> but, but again, they're, they're much more athletes now. So, so I think some of them are earning their money. When you arrived there, I mean... £30,000 a week would be a low Premier League income at the moment. I mean, when you are, when you arrived there, everybody's in yeah. the same boat in, in that sense, that everybody's oh, yeah. earning roughly the same. And you, there's a bunch of Irish guys there, Kevin Moran, Ashley Grimes, Frank Stapleton, Anto yeah. Whelan, just to name a few. You click into this kind of group and obviously Norman Whiteside becomes a pal. Maybe I have rose-tinted glasses or a nostalgic view of this period, but I find it hilarious to think that when you move there, you move into digs with a, a lady running a house who basically only serves you eggs. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and the odd play of beans once got thrown in there. So. And you and Norman are getting three buses to the cliff to train in the mornings. It seems so innocent. Do, do you do you look back on that period and look at it as kind of your college years, the university life that most people kind of look I, back on that way? Yeah, I do. I do indeed. I, I I think I look back on that time and I just think we had a fantastic. I don't know how the, the relationship wasn't as, as quick as Norman had said that as soon as he looked up, we we just you know, but we were both from different tracks in, in life and stuff like that. So. We didn't click as quick as we thought we would. But I, yeah, I did. I, I, I used to think when we're getting up in the morning, it was, for me, it was just back to being an apprentice. It was like, you know, that I'd, I'd done the work in metal workshops and stuff like that around Dublin. And it was back to being that thing where you get up in the, that, you get a shout from the landlady, you get up in the morning, you have to jump into this bus, next bus, whatever. And you have to make your way to a certain point where you're going to all fit in the van, knackered, like, uh, oh, you're already knackered anyway. And then you're thinking, now we've got to run around the pitch for God knows how many hours. And I'm not, at this moment in time, when I first went there, for, it took me about um, two weeks at least, if not three, to start to get to like Norman and, and, and another three guys from Northern Ireland. I, 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 cause I was like the black, I, I hate to say it, but the black sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so I. So I genuinely kind of was going, well, if you want to ostracize me and keep me on, keep me on the, on the outside, I'm willing to do it. I don't give a schweppes like, but if, you know, I like you, you're nice, you seem like decent lad. If you want to bring me in, we'll either have a bit of crack or we won't. 
But and eventually, Norman, um, after one game, uh, we played Newcastle, I think it was, and I, I, I misplaced a kick out and it went to Norman and he actually scored one of the most fantastic goals I ever saw. <laughs> he just, he just let a hop once and belted into the top corner. And I, after that, when I was coming off the coach, he, he said to Ron, Ron came up to him, sorry, and then just said, how did the big man play? And it was my last day of, uh, it was my last game for, uh, on, on my, uh, month loan. Norman said he was brilliant, boss. He passed. He, what a pass for the, the goal! And from that moment, and it just seemed that me and Norman clicked, and we and we've been friends ever since. So it was my miss hit pass that got past that impasse that we'd had about religion and stuff like that. I mean, Paul, it seems I don't know how to put this, but like, what a turnaround! Like for for anyone listening to that, they're going. That's living the dream for any young fellow with a, with a, whoever kicked a football in a backyard to be at a top flight club playing with a 16 year old Norman Whiteside and miss kick or not delivering a ball onto the end of his foot that goes into the top corner and you get the credit. It's the dream. And yet just two years previous, you were in a position where you were in hospital and people thought this guy's never going to interact with the world, never mind play football. Did mm. knowing that you'd been through this crash, as you describe it in the book, yeah. knowing that you'd been through that, did that, did that make it all the sweeter? No, to be honest, because I never, I never thought of the, the crash that I had was, was such a feeling of there's no way of getting out of this seriously, and I actually did feel that when it when it when, when it was happening, and only people who've been through it, I think, can can tell you that you don't you do not feel like you're ever going to come out of what what's happening to you. So, for people that so don't for, don't know, maybe you can articulate in your words what this well, crash was. Well, this crash was was, was was I was away in Germany and I I drank for the first time and stuff like that, and I'd I'd. I'd done a lot of things for the first time but mainly i just drank because i just didn't i was i was very uncomfortable because i'd, I'd been as i said i'd been brought up in an orphanage and I, i'd been bullied i'd been a bully i did i did all the things you have to do to, to survive in an orphanage and then when i was 18 i suddenly went away with them um, it was dark united and and i had a, the, the, they were so good to me that the players were absolutely fantastic to me and like even borrow me a jacket because I was still very kind of, well, I was basically skinned at the time. And lads were really so good to me. And then once some fellas, and they were all going out to a disco and they said, just have a, a, a quick shot of this stuff we got in duty free and stuff like that. So I suddenly had this swag and I, I thought, geez, that makes you feel kind of warm. And then I had another swag and they said, have one more now before we go out. And before I knew it, I was, I was dancing. I was caressing you know i was with women and stuff like that and i was thinking oh this is so this is what gets you to party and stuff like that and then i realized that um i still had to play the games for the club and stuff like that so and i played the games and the game seemed to go okay but i and i scored one or two goals but i remember getting a kick in the head um just before i came back a bad kick in the head actually and i came back and suddenly i, I found myself um going off the walking down to Larry Pear one night, just not wanting to come back really, to be fair. And, um, thank God I did. I, I stopped at the bounce down and, and did because it, you know, things seemed to be catching up on me and stuff like that. And I just, 
I went back to the guy that I was then sharing a flat with and, and I just said, why is everything strange to me now? Why is everything? And immediately he knew that I was, I was talking rubbish and he, and the next thing is I, I was in the back of an ambulance strapped down and, and being brought to uh, St. Vincent's. You brought to Vincent's and they don't know what to make of it, correct? Yeah, they think, uh, you know, St. Vincent's to do their best to, to try and diagnose what was happening to me. But then they, um, I think they just thought, you know, either way with the fairy, they'll just get him to somewhere where, where, where they can help him, but he, we, we can't do it here. Like, so I went to, um, St. Lomans and a, a few other places and there was, it was a horrible time in my life, but it, 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 there was always people coming from, um, Dorky, even, even if it was, the, and I just, I have these memories of, of certain friends coming from school who just want, who just wanted to sit there for 20 minutes, just talking to me and stuff like that, or throwing a ball to me and stuff, making me try to want to catch up. I couldn't catch a football. And it was, it's funny to, from going to be able to know where you can put a ball a hundred yards away with your foot to know that you can't catch one in your hand. <laughs> it's the strangest um, feeling that, that I've ever felt in my life. And I still, and even today when people talk about it, like you just brought up now, Jared, and I'm thinking to myself, even when you talk about it, it's, the most ridiculous thing to remember that you couldn't catch a football and yet you could, in it, you know, a few months earlier, you could belt the ball to a hundred yards to within, you know, within three yards. <laughs> I think uh, Vincent Hogan and you did an incredible job in the book of explaining what you've just explained there in a kind of a longer form of how you felt outside of yourself, that you were kind of watching people that you weren't communicating at all. And there, yeah. he includes other voices of people that visited you at the time and how they were really using the ball to try and coax you out of your shell. And gradually, gradually, it happens. Like you, you, you do come back to the world. And it is a kind of an inexplicable phenomenon that you're describing that's not un unusual in in psychological terms, people do talk about these states. Well, well, it, what was strange for me was, was because the first time I, and I genuinely had, had, had the last rites in, in St. Vincent, but I was told, I, I remember telling them there was one nurse in particular who was actually a very good looking girl, obviously. And, <laughs> but I remember saying to her, like when my mum was there and my mum of course was, was beside herself with worry, but I remember actually saying to my mum. I'm going to play in the FA Cup. Now, and, and loads of people think, oh yeah, now that's put on to gloss up the book or mm -hmm. make the book look bigger and stuff like that. But to be honest, that was an actual true statement because I remember actually saying to her, and then I was very ill at the time, extremely ill, and I actually said to her, I am going to play in the World Cup or the, the FA Cup. I am going to play in the FA Cup. Believe you me, I'm going. And I was thinking, that nurse must have been thinking, what is the FA Cup? Like, <laughs> but, but, but I'm, and my mother, and I kept saying it to her, I'm going to play that. And then that became a mantra that I'm, whatever happens here, whatever you think you see lying on the bed at that stage, which to be honest, I had bed sores. I had every sort of thing. Cause I had, I wasn't getting moved regularly and stuff like that. So I just thought if I was going to grip onto something, it had to be something about football. And if I was going to grip onto anything about football, it was in those days, the FA Cup was massive. It was a massive, massive competition. And I, I just thought to myself, well, 
And, and I, to be honest, I wasn't thinking that well, but I just thought, but it was amazing that to actually say those words to someone and, and then even years later, remember it and, and, and think, Jesus, you know, how, how can it happen that someone can get out of the bed years later and actually become someone and become, not that you weren't someone, but become this person that actually plays in an in FA Cup. So it's kind of, it'd freak you out if you weren't, um, if it wasn't true. Well, it, it is remarkable that, you know, from all accounts, they had written you off. And I mean, whatever about everything else that's happened to you, Paul, throughout your life and the challenges you faced, that alone, that little window that you had there of nearly two years of being bedbound. I mean, you describe in the book your your knees sticking together, your legs actually being having to be prized apart. You were left lying in the one position for so long. For most people, that one incident alone would be the basis of their book. That uh, and then I made it back and I did lift the FA Cup. Well, yeah, but but but, but it was true that you know because obviously there's there's. My my mum used to come up every day because she she lived in Crumlin and and it was it was tough for my mum and my aunt you know to have to get so many buses up to St Brendan's where I was staying at the time and I remember one day in particular seriously someone trying to prize it, it might sound funny now but it, it didn't at the time but prize my legs open but it, it was just one of those things and I still have the the and and ironically when I when I actually had my first medical with Manchester United, he told me that I'd broken a few ribs. Um, and I remember, I remember playing at St. Patrick's where someone actually did, look, because I tackled someone a little bit harshly, he, and then I just looked up and this fellow was flying through the air and he actually kicked me in the rib. And he broke a load of my, he broke one or two of the ribs. And I, I'd never even known about it. He said, no, they've healed up. The Manchester United team, the doctor's team had said, no, they've healed up perfectly. The remarkable recovery from it is is enough for most people to say, well, that was my no. achievement in life. And you were saying that just the idea that you wouldn't get to play football was ultimately what pulled you out of it. But, I, but genuinely, I do honestly believe that most people would be happy with coming back from that and just being, being in society. Sure. And, and even in my own case, I think I would have been happy just playing no, not even playing soccer again. I never wanted to play. I used to say to my mother, I'm never kicking the ball again. I used to, in, in, when I was in Vincent, I said I, I was going to be in the FA Cup final. And then, but when I was getting a little bit weller, I kept saying, I never want to kick a ball again. I do not want to kick one football again. And the people from Dalkey kept coming up. You know, that, I think they had a rotation scheme where they they kept coming up and they kept saying, um, Paul, would you like to come down and just watch? Uh, we're only training for half an hour tonight, so would you come down for half an hour? Just watch us playing. You don't have to join in. You don't have to do anything. And I, I obviously, I wanted to see the lads. I just thought, how nice of you is always to keep coming back to the, um, the hospital and stuff like that and taking turns and trying to, trying to get me back on, on, on track. And then it was a case of what, do you want to join in one training session and you don't even have to kick the ball. We won't even kick the ball too yet. And so got like that. So where I knew I was been, to be honest, I wasn't at that, that I was, I didn't know that I was being manipulated back into some sort of, um, social integration really with them. 
and and to be honest, I don't think they would have cared whether I whether I played soccer again or not, as long as I got healthy. And and uh, God bless them, Jesus. They they did more than get me healthy. They got me back playing soccer. They certainly did because that you know, however good you were before this Germany trip, what followed was what ultimately you know, made you the prospect that Sir Matt Busby took such an interest in. I, like, I wonder in a strange kind of way, was it now that you'd seen the other side or you'd seen the brink that now you were playing football differently or did you just resume what you were doing prior to it? Cool. Well, great question. Great question. Um, no, to be honest, I, I was doing the exact same thing as, as I was doing before. Because I had that, I still had that same, I, I remember like when, when Fatima came to play Dalky one time and someone did call me a rather bad name and I kicked him. No, and, and he was a big, he was a, a big guy at the, at the time, but I just thought, well, if I don't, if I don't kick him, he's going to call me again. And if I do kick him. And as soon as I kicked him, I walked off the pitch because I knew I was going to get sent off. Like he called me something mm-hmm. that he shouldn't have. And I, I did, I lashed out with my left foot, which is not my good foot. So I thought I better catch him halfway right because if I don't, he's going to come after me. So I was thinking of all these things. And, and to be honest, I hit him the greatest boot with my left foot. And I started walking off the pitch then because I thought he's either going to stand back up and come after me and get me. And Fatima were, were a great team at that time. And I, I admired them as a, as a football team, but I just didn't like, they always had, a, they had a little bit of attitude and they were from a certain area, but, and I grew, and then I grew to love all that team because I, I, I used to play five to five in Dublin with them. But at that moment in time, I just paid that guy, but I didn't want people to think that I was that sort of player. But, but at that moment in time, I was because he'd called me something that brought back something in me that I said, no, I'm not standing for that. And I don't care how big you are, you're going to get a kick in the stomach now. You better get ready for it. I didn't give him really good chance to get ready for it, but I just, I just led off. And that was, so that fire was still in me. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, with the football. that, uh, that physicality and people don't realize when we talk about this now is that, <clears throat> I mean, you mentioned in the book that Ron Atkinson used to punch you in the chest before you went out to try and get you, you know, to fire you up, to turn that switch that allowed yeah. you to access that fire that you're talking about. On Ron's part, it was a smart thing to do to me, but well, Ron used to do it like to and catch me unawares. Like I'd be walking maybe to 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 go to the toilet before the last before we all walked out, and suddenly he'd come up to me and he'd hold, he'd hold me on the shoulder and just say, "Now listen, will you start?" And then suddenly he'd give me a dig in the chest. Oh, catch you off kilter. Yeah. And I used to think, "Now why did you do that before we're going out?" But I, then I realized, like, smart thing to do because I used to go out then going. I was angry at him. Yeah. But I would take it out on someone else. So, I, so it was a smart, a very smart um, way of getting me kind of, because uh, I'd walk on the, out in the pitch annoyed and I'd have a face on me walking out and people would be, <laughs> from the opposition would be looking over going, um, I wonder what's up. Is <laughs> the girlfriend broken up the murder or the wife? <laughs> but, uh, you know, something, it was something that he, he thought was, 
necessary. I, I thought it was very unnecessary. <laughs> well, the, but he thought it was it was brilliant for him to do it. He's an incredibly intuitive man. The managers that you worked with, I mean, intuition and kind of reading people is kind of part and parcel of the job. Ferguson, you know, made a reading on you, which was, here's a guy who likes his pints and has bad knees. Now, I'd rather get him out than have to deal with them if I'm trying to institute some kind of regime change here. What he does to get you out is well documented, so that he tries to convince you to retire completely from the game. Now, there's debate over whether that was him trying to do you a favor or him trying to do himself a favor and not have to face you when you played for someone else. But either way, it lit a fire inside you that I'd love to hear about. This kind of anger that said, you know what? Screw you. I will show you. And I, I have this now as fuel for my fire. I, I'll be honest, in my soul, it was not an anger. Right. I knew that I was annoying this man to the greatest extent that I could. I, I genuinely knew that he was annoyed with me. He was annoyed with Norman. He was annoyed with Robbo. He was annoyed with Kevin. He, he was annoyed with all of us that drank. But I didn't drink even like the other lads. I drank because I was socially inept. I didn't like conversing with people. I didn't like going to parties unless I was drunk. I got drunk before I went to the actual party. So I was kind of a lost cause even before. Now, now he, he had said that he didn't, even before, when he was coming down to Manchester, he, he was, I was one of his targets, basically. And that was um, a friend of mine has since told me that, that I was always going out the door. But I didn't mind that. But the thing that I didn't did mind that I, I love Manchester United. I thought the supporters, I've always had a great rapport with. And so for me, I didn't want to leave because I just fe I felt kind of like I, I, there was more to come from me. But I needed, you wanted a manager that was wanting you to stay there. And so while I don't renegotiate a contract with um, Manchester United to stay there for seven years, suddenly then I was getting told, well, you're not wanted. So I, I, I accepted that fully like because i just thought well if you if there's someone who doesn't want it then but then i heard this thing about the, the hundred thousand pounds and the never play football it was basically like a bribe never to play football again in case you became the player you're supposed to become what kind and, of a character is alex ferguson to do that because you know we hear a lot about the man and i think he's been mysticized in some ways and then you'll hear stories like this and you know stories like roy's stories not that far from this where he goes into a meeting in an office that he assumes is just a general chit chat and suddenly you know there's but, but, a box of I, I, stuff on the table i no but i have to be honest now i i genuinely i like the person that alex ferguson has become because he's become obviously more generous as the way life has worked out. But he, he was genuinely always nice to me. He was always nice to me when, I mean, I had one or two misdemeanors where, where he, he'd, he'd come into the hospital and he'd, he'd always show up like where, when my knee got bust. Now I was standing on my knee when I tried to kick, uh, score a goal for Ireland against Peter Shilton and I had three operations on my left knee and he always came into the hospital just to see how I was doing and stuff like that. So he was always a nice human being. Mm. I just thought he didn't want, 
I think he saw the potential in me enough, which I like to think of it this way, <laughs> that he saw enough potential in me that I could come back and be United's worst nightmare if I, if I lived up to my full potential. Right. But then he never, I don't think he ever saw me living up to my full potential. He thought I was always going to be um, one of the boys who just drank and, and wasted his life and then just went off into the distance and stuff like that. He wanted, but he did want to do it a little bit earlier than I'd planned. I mean, you say he didn't live, he never really saw you at your full potential. I mean, potential is such a, (laughs) such a bizarre kind of notion, this idea that, you know, who, who could we be when essentially we are the sum of our parts. You are Paul McGrath because of everything, not just, you know, one exclusive uh, coach. I am totally with you on that. That I genuinely believed, what was I going to do? Was I going to walk away with a hundred thousand pounds in your back pocket and go back to Ireland, basically with my tail between my legs saying, I tried it, it's worked out half kind of thing. In a year, I'll be sitting on a bar stool somewhere saying, I used to be such and such. And it wasn't a great fun, but I played for Manchester United, which is a huge plus for any human being to be able to say. But every, every sinew in my body was just saying to, to, my, to, to him and, and thank God Gordon Taylor listened and said, Paul, no, because I, I, I sat with Gordon afterwards and I just said, you know, the funny thing is, I really do not want to stop this game. I, this is the only thing I know how to do, probably better than a few people. Forget about the hundred thousand. I don't want one. It's not about cash. It's about wanting to go out and hear someone call your name maybe sometimes or or, or play for your country or win something for someone or, you know, the, the excitement that you see in kids' faces sometimes. It is about, and I know that's romanticizing a little bit, but it, it's actually trying to be honest about it as well. But I think, uh, like I don't think it is romanticizing it. I think that uh, there, there obviously, there is a buzz to what you do. I mean, that's fascinating to hear that those are the things that, that were, that are more important in this. I mean, Particularly in a game that nowadays everybody's talking about, these guys are only in it for the money. You you actually were presented with a situation where it was like you can continue playing the sport and yeah. you'll go through a lot of pain or take or cash in your chips. And you chose the buzz. You chose the love of I, it. Well, to be honest, yeah, and in some respect, I, I chose the pain. Because it, my, my, both my knees were, were wrecked. So it was, it was getting down to my right knee in particular was bone on bone. So it was kind of choosing a painful way, but it was something that I loved. Football was something that it was the only probably thing that I was, I thought I was quite good at. So the pain was, the pain you can kind of half blot out. The, the money side of it was never an issue with me. It was a never an issue. I just kind of went, I, I was kind of laughing, like thinking, what, you you go home to Ireland with a hundred grand, to be honest, a couple of nights out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the, the, the actual pain of, of having knees that are, are deteriorating and, and, and are going to get at a faster level. But then the, the level of pain increased as I grew older. But then I, then I realized, you know, you can put up with it, you, you know. Well, certain ways that I had to, because I, I used to get injections and stuff like that on my knees and stuff. And that was, that was probably worse than 
just telling the people to leave them alone. Well, you come across one of your, your best aids in dealing with the knees and uh, moving forward and having a career after you've been told that you could call it a day now medically was Jim Walker at, at Aston Villa, who becomes one of your lifelong friends and kind of realizes that, you know, this Paul McGrath at this point of his life isn't benefiting from training. And in fact, if we want him ready for Saturday, he's not going to train with the team. When that idea gets put out there, First of all, what's your reaction and what is the team's reaction? Because I doubt that it's easy to remain, uh, I don't know, part of the gang when you're watching training and not going through the hard stuff. My reaction is, Jim, I love you. <laughs> the reaction, yeah, the reaction from me is obviously one of, you mean I don't have to train anymore and I can still walk out on a Saturday because that's where I got the but Jim, I, Jim, I think Jim understood that I got, I genuinely got a kick of adrenaline at about quarter three. I used to get this enormous kick of adrenaline that I just wanted to go. I didn't care who it was you were facing, Duncan Ferguson, you know, Whitehurst, anyone. There were, there were just these lads, the players that jumped fast on you, that you knew you were going to get an elbow from and stuff like that. But at the quarter three, I had this urge of just. Okay, whoever you are, here, here comes the day. You're going to get what I've got to give you. You're going to give me the same. One of us is going to come off the better, but it's going to be a battle. Today, you're going to face a battle. And I love that part of football, and I genuinely do. And, and, the, and the, the better the guy, the bigger the guy, the stronger the guy that I was facing, it seemed the more or the trickier as they went along. I loved, I loved closing down angles on players and, and saying, Ian Rush was one of those players that I didn't like particularly because he used to close the, he used to run at you, sprint at people and close your angles down so much that it, it, it was, it was, it was always awkward with him because, and even though he's been very generous to me, even in, in chatting since, but I, I think he always knew about the angles and he used to chase it so quickly from, he was like a rabbit out of the thing so quickly and he, He'd get to you as quick as he can because he knew that closing you down, even in three strides, narrowed your angles to be able to where you could play the ball on a football pitch. And it's simple if you think about it logically, mm. as he did. But to me, seeing him even start to run, I used to go, oh, Schweppes, here you <laughs> Get the ball out of your feet and get it away as quick as you can because he's going to be on you like a, in a bit second. It was great fun. The guys that you're you're training with in that in that Villa team that ultimately you know a lot of people believe should have won a league title and were just pipped at the last minute for it. Those guys hadn't even had time to earn respect for you at the club when this decision was made. My understanding is that your de the decision for you not to train happened really early doors. How did the lads crazy, react? Yeah. How did, how were the guys about it? Were, I can't, I can't imagine that they were all like, oh, that's great. We'll train and you'll yeah. watch. Yeah, there was a lot, there was a, there was a few players who were, um, from. You can hear the rest of this chat and all our previous episodes for as little as a five or a month plus tax over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. There's so much more in this conversation. There's also hundreds of episodes like Ronnie Whelan. So 
in 10 seconds, like my 60 minutes in the pool was finished and gone. Um, that goes through your head in that moment. Um, I went in, got dressed, and I could hear that the first team off train and then just got in the car, went out, and stopped halfway home and cried for a while. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was that, how it ended. Which is after 15 years, if you feel you, you, you deserve a little bit more, but that's football. You, you, it's, it's, when you finish, you move on, and the next one comes in. Seamus Coleman, Jason McAteer, and many, many more deep dive chats in a fully searchable archive over there where you can save whatever ones you like to listen to later or whenever you're out on whatever journey you're on. Patreon is how we pay the bills here these days, so I'd massively appreciate your support over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. You have been listening to the complete digitally remastered, re-edited and uninterrupted Paul Magra interview from the Irishman Abroad. This is, of course, a podcast from the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. Thanks to Deck Pierce for helping to arrange this episode. Music is courtesy of Epidemic Sounds, editing, remastering, sound mixing, and research by Jarlath Regan. 